Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. About one year ago, actually exactly one year ago this week, I preached basically from this same text, except for from the Gospel of Luke. And at the time, I had joked that I had at least three sermons in me on this text. And I told Father Jordan that I wanted to dibs this week in the lectionary, three years in the future, when I was going to have the ability to preach on the exact same text. So imagine my surprise when I agreed to preach this week and looked at the lectionary text and saw that, ah, this was exactly similar passage, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, that I talked about last year. So this week I'm officially announcing that I am initiating a multi-part, multi-year sermon series on this passage (laughs) with no definitive end date, and I can't tell you when the next sermon is going to be, but somehow I'm stuck with this passage now. This is my thing, and I'm okay with that. Um, Now, in case a year ago you didn't happen to be taking copious notes, we will start by doing a quick review of what we talked about last time before diving into the text today. So, Let's talk about last time. We looked at Luke 14, a really similar passage, and we talked in Luke 14 about death and what it means for our identity. We focused specifically on the topic of identity. We wrestled with this question of how could dying to ourselves possibly be okay? How could that be gospel good news? And we talked about how how we find Jesus in his death. We're united with Christ in his death. But then we also talked about how, interestingly, we, we find Jesus in our own death. We are buried with him by baptism into death. We've died and our life is hidden with Christ. In any time of death, of trial, of suffering, Jesus is there. And then we talked about how this points us to this beautiful paradox, which is that by dying to ourselves, by by losing our perceived identity, somehow rather than becoming less ourselves, we actually become more ourselves. And we talked about how C.S. Lewis uses the imagery of salt to talk about this. We we don't use salt to make food taste different. We use salt to make food taste more like itself. Death brings out our unique flavor that the Creator gave us at the beginning of time. And this is emphasized by the end of our passage today where it says, by losing our life for His sake, we find it. So we talked about death and identity. Today, as we look at Matthew 16, part two of my unofficial sermon series, I want to talk about death and our relationship with power, what this passage tells us about power. And as we think about this, I want to frame it with three questions. The first is a question that Jordan raised last week, which is, what is the nature of this Messiah that we see from this passage? And then the second, more difficult question to answer is, why is this his nature? And then lastly, what should our nature be as disciples of this Messiah? So, to better understand the nature of the Messiah, let's let's revisit the passage we just heard read in Matthew 16. I actually want to zoom out and look at what Jesus was doing right before we get to the section about taking up your cross and denying yourself. If we back up to verse 21, there's this interaction where Jesus is talking to the disciples not about how, how we need to die yet, how they need to deny themselves, but he starts by talking about how he's going to die. And then Peter basically says, no way, this can never happen. And then Peter earns the infamous distinction of being the one person who Jesus compared to Satan in Scripture. So read along with me. I just want to reread, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. The Greek there for hindrance means stumbling block. So there's some interesting wordplay going on here. If you remember the passage before this that we heard about last week, it's where Peter is affirming that Jesus is the Messiah. He correctly affirms Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus says, you are Peter, Petros in Greek, and on this Petra, on this rock, I'll build my church. Peter, the rock. But now, in this passage, we read that this rock has actually become a stumbling block, a hindrance. So here Jesus is with his disciples, and instead of telling them what they want to hear, instead of talking about how he's the Messiah here here to rescue the people of Israel from their oppression and restore them to their rightful place, he's spending his time talking about how he's going to suffer, how he's going to be defeated, and, and then raised a few days later. But I'm sure that was hard for them to believe. And as soon as Peter implies that this whole story about suffering and being defeated is not very Messiah-like behavior, Jesus calls him Satan. Now, this calling him Satan is, of course, a callback to the temptation in the wilderness. We only see the word Satan used about three times in the book of Matthew. One of these other times is in chapter 4, where the devil brings Jesus to the mountaintop. He promises to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he only bows down and worships him. And Jesus says, be gone, Satan. Be gone, Satan. So there's this common thread that's being made in the text here between Satan and Peter. They're both offering Jesus a path to power without suffering, without death. And Jesus is completely uninterested in this type of power. In fact, he's vehemently opposed to it. Now, there's another interesting thing that we see in the text that actually occurs right before our reading this week. Um, And we see it throughout the Gospels too. And it's this theme of Jesus who seems very focused on not explicitly telling people in a big public way that he's the Messiah. He's not advertising every miracle, every healing that he does. In verse 20, it says, Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we read stories about Jesus healing people and then saying, don't tell anyone what's just happened. We read about him expelling demons and then commanding the demons not to say his name because they know who he is. Why does Jesus seem so uninterested in showing off that he is the Messiah? Why does he not want to tell the whole world about his messiahship? If you were the God incarnate here to save all of humanity, what would you do? You would explicitly show your power, your glory. You would shout it from the mountaintops. There has historically been a lot of uh, theological hand-wringing over this so-called messianic secret. Jordan talked about this a little bit last week. There are a couple of plausible explanations for it. One, which Jordan highlighted, is that maybe Jesus was doing this because it just wasn't the right timing. As soon as we see Jesus publicly confirming that he is the Messiah, he's killed very shortly thereafter. So maybe there's a sense that he had more work to do. This this wasn't the time for him to fully reveal this. But I think there's another possibility here too, and, and that's that Jesus is trying to teach his followers to demonstrate to his followers something about the type of Messiah that he came to be, trying to show them that he didn't come to be the type of Messiah who seizes power, who grabs attention for himself. Because the issue is not that Jesus failed to demonstrate he's the Messiah. The issue is that Peter, the disciples, the Jews didn't have the right definition of Messiah in the first place. Jesus is basically coming and and saying, hey, I'm the type of Messiah who's come to suffer and die, and Peter fails to have an imagination for how a Messiah could possibly look like this. 
And you can't entirely blame him. The, the notion of a suffering Messiah, while we certainly find it in the Old Testament, was not like the mainstream understanding of a Messiah in his day. Not, not even close. Most Jews had a political, nationalistic expectation of the Messiah. They were expecting a son of David, a new powerful king who was going to come and overthrow Rome and restore Israel to their rightful place of power. So you can see how Peter might have had a hard time with a seemingly weak savior who's killed. This Messiah is supposed to be the conqueror, not the conqueree, which is a word, by the way. I actually looked that up. I thought I made it up. So, so what does this tell us about the nature of our Messiah? What, what does this tell us about his relationship to power? For that, we're going to take a quick detour and talk about Karl Marx. I know, you're thinking, again, we hear about this guy every week. I'm kidding. Um, Karl Marx's theory of revolution has some interesting commentary to make about power and the nature of power. The whole theory of revolution is that the inevitable solution to capitalism is that the proletariat, the workers, eventually need to overthrow the capitalists, the landowning capitalists, the bourgeoisie, and then that would restore things to their, their kind of rightful place of power that would fix the problems of capitalism, basically just switching the positions of who are the people are in, that are in power. But as sinful human beings, we can see the flaw in this logic, can't we? What, what happens when fallen humans are facing the same temptations to abuse power that cause them to resent the former rulers in the first place? As Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Unless you think I'm picking on Marx, we make this same mistake today all the time. Just, just think about the modern political landscape, especially here in the U.S. How do we think about power? Well, we tend to think the problem is who has the power, not the power itself. We think if we can just get the right candidate in office, if we can get our party in the White House, well, then things would be right. Then there would be perfect justice. How well has that worked out for us, especially in recent history? Hasn't been pretty. And when I read the Gospels, this is not how I see Jesus dealing with power at all. The reason that Jesus had such a strong reaction to, to Peter's suggestion, to Satan's temptation, that he could be a conqueror and a ruler without giving up anything is because Jesus has a completely different model of what power actually looks like. He seems less interested in who has power and more interested in how someone carries their power. And Jesus, especially as he gets closer to his death, I think models what we could call left-handed power. Have you heard this phrase before? Theologians have often made a distinction between left-handed and right-handed power. It's, it's a distinction typically attributed to Martin Luther. Right-handed power is a type of power we are all most familiar with. Right-handed power is straight-line, cause-and-effect power. As Robert Farrar Capon says, right-handed power is using the force you need to get the result you want. You, you hit a nail with a hammer, the nail sinks itself into the wood. You scrub the floor, the brush removes dirt from the floor. You, you are, are speeding and the police lights turn on behind you, you pull your car over out of fear of facing more right-handed power. Right-handed power has its uses, though. It, uh, it's what makes our world run. Thanks to right-handed power, our paychecks arrive on time, our, our garden is weeded, planes are able to navigate. We couldn't live without it, but it is not the only kind of power because there's also left-handed power. Left-handed power is the polar opposite. It's subversive. It's a paradox. It's power that doesn't actually look like power. In fact, it often looks like weakness. 
you, you, it doesn't compute. It is not cause and effect. You can't trace how it works from point A to point B. And left-handed power comes from the realization that sometimes the best way to demonstrate the power that you do have is actually by giving it up. We see this good example of this in the practice of nonviolent resistance. Think about figures like, like Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela. These are individuals who had enormous power. They had a following, people that they could mobilize. How did they choose to wield that power? What did their lives look like? They were marked by suffering, by persecution, self-sacrifice, apparent weakness by worldly standards. And Jesus, while he absolutely had his moments of right-handed power, I submit is the greatest example of left-handed power that the world has ever seen. Born in a feeding trough to some poor no-name parents, he was a common laborer, seemingly homeless. He, he hung out with unclean people, the outcasts, the sinners, the nobodies. Even his teaching was marked by left-handed power. He, he usually taught in these indirect parables. He was receiving verbal, physical threats, tried, killed as a common criminal, and he was laid in a tomb that, at least according to Matthew, belonged to somebody else. And yet, in all of this, in this descent, in all of this apparent weakness, he changed everything. He changed the course of history, and that, I think, is an answer to our question about the nature of this Messiah. This is his heart. This is who he came to be. It's what, it's what Peter didn't get. It's what Satan didn't get. It's what the Jewish leaders didn't get. He came to demonstrate a different way, the way of left-handed power. So perhaps that helps us a little bit in understanding the what. What is the nature of this Messiah? But it doesn't answer the why. Why would this be the way he chooses to exercise his power? And honestly, this is a much more difficult question to answer. But I think we can get some ideas from looking at Scripture. Uh, the, the first, which is kind of a repeated pattern we see throughout the Gospels, is that he did it to fulfill Scriptures. Jesus is very clear about this. Matthew 26 is a good example. This is the, the scene where Jesus is arrested, and, and one of his followers cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. I don't think we have a godly play kit for that yet, but we need to get that one. Put that on the to-do list. <laughs> Jesus responds, Matthew 26, verse 52, he says, Put your sword back in its place. All those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You think I can't appeal to my Father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? He's saying, I don't need your right-handed power. Thank you very much. I have that. I'm choosing not to use it so that the Scriptures can be fulfilled. Jesus saw something in the Old Testament that most others were overlooking in their thirst for right-handed power. So perhaps that's one reason why the Messiah modeled himself this way, why this was his nature. But I think there's also another simpler reason, maybe, and that's that the incarnation was never really about power to begin with. We, we read in 1 Corinthians God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Power isn't why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was about love, for God so loved the world. And power, even the divine power of the Almighty God, cannot command love. Uh, if you've ever seen or you're familiar with the musical Hamilton, 
one of my favorite songs from it is called You'll Be Back. It's kind of this breakup song between King George of England and the American colonists where King George is deluding himself into thinking that someday these colonists will realize how good he actually was to them. Someday they'll come around. And there's this line that I love where he says, when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. (laughs) As if a threatening display of power will win their hearts and command their affection. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard famously wrote a parable about power and love called The King and the Maiden. You may have heard it before. It goes something like this. There was once a king who loved a humble maiden. She was poor, a peasant, had nothing to her name, had no advantages in this world, but he still loved her and he couldn't stop loving her. So he faced a dilemma. How could he get her to love him back? How, how could he woo her? How could he build a relationship with her? They lived in two completely separate universes. How could he bridge that gap? Well, one option is he's the king. He could march up to her house with his guards and his horses and demand that she become his queen. And as a great, powerful, feared king, this might actually work. She, she might actually move into the palace with him and, and become his queen, but there's a problem. He could force her to live with him, but he couldn't force her to love him in her heart. So option two is okay. The king thinks I could elevate her to my position, crown her as the queen, bribe her with gifts, give her fine clothes, give her power of her own. But then there's a similar problem with that, and that's, well, would she actually be loving him for himself or just for all the stuff that he'd given her? So the king realized there's only one way that this could work. And one day he got up and he removed his crown and he set aside his royal robes and he moved to the village and lived as a peasant, owning nothing and begging for food. And Kierkegaard ends the parable like this. He says, he did not just take on the outward appearance of a servant, the king became a servant. It was his actual life, his actual nature, his actual burden. He became as ragged as the one he loved so that she could be his forever. It was the only way his raggedness became the very signature of his presence. So friends, I think this is another reason why Jesus walked the path of left-handed power. This is why he submitted himself to, to suffering, to torture, to a brutal death. This is why, as we read in Philippians 2, he, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did it for love, for you, his beloved. He did it because it was the only way we'd be able to truly, purely love him and be in relationship with him without being motivated by fear or focusing on what's actually in it for us. And I think he also did it because it's the only type of power that can't be overcome. Right-handed power can always be overcome with more right-handed power. You can just escalate, 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 but nothing can overcome left-handed power because it's not a state of doing, it's a state of being. True left-handed power, true love, true forgiveness, true, true humility, nothing can take that away, nothing. I, I once heard a preacher refer to this as stoppable, unstoppable power. So, Maybe that gives us another reason why Jesus took on this nature, to fulfill scriptures and also for love, for the one thing that no other power can overcome. So, as we close, what should our nature be as followers of this Messiah? Well, 
we love, because he first loved us. We do what all disciples do. We, we model our lives after our rabbi. We choose the path of left-handed power, even when it means looking weak ourselves, looking foolish to the world. If, if you are in a position where you have power, most of us have some kind of power, where do you need in your life to die to yourself, to let go of right-handed power? Where are you grasping on to social standing or, or money or influence or fame or, or comfort? Where are you focusing on things that carry all the trappings of power but are ultimately meaningless? Maybe you've used power that you do have, you've used authority that you do have to hurt to belittle, to demean someone who has less power than you do. Or maybe you're using the power that you have to withhold forgiveness from someone who's hurt you. Maybe you are using the power that you have for self-serving purposes, and you're preoccupied with gathering up more of it for yourself. Jesus is calling on you to us to take up our cross and follow him to lay down our right-handed power in favor of the power that can never be overcome. And when you find yourself in a season of death, in a season of powerlessness, when you feel like you're continually striving and it's never enough, remember, just like we talked about a year ago, Jesus is right there with you in the death, in the suffering, and you can trust him because he's the Messiah through who, through his left-handed power, defeated sin, and defeated death once and for all. So lean on him. Rest in his stoppable, unstoppable power. Pray with me. Jesus, our true Messiah, Emmanuel, we ask that you disentangle us from the desire for power that's wrapped itself so tightly around our hearts. Open us up to a new way of being, a way that looks more like you, Give us the courage to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, God, the strength to not be conformed to this world, the discipline to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as you show us how to lay down our power, may it serve as a beautiful example of your heart to the rest of the world so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To you be the glory, God, and you alone. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.